Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. A platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. Climate change, poverty elevation, food security. With so many pressing issues, the world faces an urgent need for decisive action. Where the challenges in coordinating within the G20 between the North and the South really crops up. The G20 summit arrived at a crucial juncture for international cooperation, with the leaders gathering under the theme, One Earth, One Home, One Future. Yeah, I think multilateralism is already a reality, but it's a matter of how we can all come together. Amidst the lingering shadow of geopolitical uncertainty and sluggish economic growth, can nations surmount their differences and forge consensus? We have to get the sufficient uh, implementation mechanism. Start by looking at the facts and not engaging in fantasies. Join this week's BizTalk as we delve into how major economies utilize this year's G20 Summit as a platform to seek consensus amid global challenges. Only on BizTalk. Only on CGTN. Welcome to this special edition of Econ Talk on CGTN. I'm Guan Xing. The Group of 20, commonly known as the G20, consisting of the world's largest economies, convened its annual summit in New Delhi, India, from September 9th to 10th. This summit brought together world leaders to address pressing global issues, from achieving net zero emissions, debt relief, to reducing inequality. The summit represents a significant triumph for multilateralism. China, a staunch advocate of G20 cooperation, reiterated its unwavering support for multilateralism during the event. Chinese Premier Li Qiang emphasized in the summit, humanity shares a common stake. Major crises and common challenges impact us all. Solidarity and cooperation are the only path forward. So how can G20 leaders work through their differences to take decisive action on shared global priorities? Can the G20 adapt to give greater voice to developing countries most impacted by global crisis? We have an esteemed panel of experts joining us to provide insights into the key issues and challenges facing the G20 nations, and they are Nelson Wang, Vice Chairman of the Shanghai Center for Rimpact Strategy and International Studies. Welcome. Thank you. And John Ross, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University. And Sora Gupta, Resident Fellow at the uh, Institute for China-America Studies. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invite. And use Rizzo Demery, Executive Director of Center for Strategic and International Studies. Well, let's start with uh, Mr. Gupta. What is your take on the most depressing issues and challenges facing the G20 nations as the leaders gather for this summit? How to advance its mandate of promoting economic growth, uh, financial stability, and global development amid increasingly complex international environment? 
It's a proud moment for India to be hosting the event. Uh, India has always wanted its moment in the sun. It's finally getting a, its moment in the sun. And it has a lot of challenges, of course, domestically. But right now, as chaired, the larger challenges is coordinating, uh, basically herding all the cats together at the G20 summit. And I think the problem for India out here has been that India itself has been sort of running with the hares and hunting with the hounds in mm. terms of where it stands on the most divisive issue going into the G20, which is the Ukraine issue, yeah. because it has it has played both sides and and in in joint statements too, and 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 the problem arising out here is that at large multilateral venues, it is the Western countries which put their foot down and demand that there is strong statement against Russia essentially. So basically, if the Western countries would relent a little bit and focus the the, the topic, the subject of the G20 more on economics and development, of which there are many, many challenges and which we will, we can, we will uncertain talk about, I think we can have a little more harmony. Otherwise, I'm afraid we'll again have the chair putting out an outcome document, trying to harmonize positions. But at the end of the day, I think it's been India running with the hares, hunting with the hounds, which has then created the situation where it's not being able to, to hammer a consensus on some of the most critical issues, including the Ukraine issue, the Ukraine conflict. Definitely, that's right. And that is one of the uh, key challenges facing the world today, to bridging the differences, uh, especially on some of the uh, key issues. Um, we know that Indonesia was hosting the G20 last year. How successful was Indonesia in solving these global problems amid these uh, uh, uncertainties around the world? Uh, I would like to turn to Mr. Damri for that. Uh, I think uh, Indonesia was, uh, to some extent, quite successful. Uh, at least uh, in Bali, the leaders managed to get the declarations. Uh, but we we have to uh, admit that this time is really difficult time for for uh, G20 and also for other co global cooperation initiative uh, and. Like, for example, uh, you mentioned also about bridging so the diverse interests among its members. And uh, even maintaining cohesion uh, in G20 is uh, uh, quite challenging at this time. Uh, without even the geopolitical tensions and rivalry among major powers, actually the aspirations among the uh, G20 members, it's becoming, or the gap is becoming widening. Um, even in the areas where interests are in line, uh, take for example on multilateral trading systems. Uh, everybody agree, all countries agree that the multilateral trading systems need to be reformed, but on how to do that and what uh, what to be addressed, what to be reformed, there, there would be a, a big disagreement. Uh, also on debt issue, for example, the last year's Bali, uh, Bali declarations uh, explicitly mentioned to reiterate our commitment, their commitment to step up uh, efforts to implement the common framework for debt treatments beyond the debt service uh, suspension initiative. The, the problems of debt in many developing countries are even becoming more important uh, at the moment. So, again, 
Uh, yeah. G20 really needs to do a lot of more homework about it. Indeed, and uh, I want to go to Mr. Wang because China also firmly upholds multilateralism. Uh, do you think multilateralism is the works of this G20 with so many uh, divisions on a lot of key issues? Well, uh, multilateralism is, uh, is a buzzword that has been going on around the world for uh, quite a few years, actually, and it's becoming more and more popular these days. But uh, whether multilateralism is already a reality or is something to be cherished for, that's something uh, I think uh, it really depends on uh, the perspectives everybody takes. But uh, to me, I think multilateralism is already a reality. Uh, but it's a matter of how uh, we can all come together, the developed countries and the developing countries, how these two groups of countries can come together instead of separating from each other. So uh, I, I always hold the opinion that uh, the world and tomorrow is not going to be made better if we split the world into two competing camps again. So the whole economy around the world is already interwoven and uh, countries are dependent upon each other. No country can survive alone all by itself these days because this is the 21st century. We're not living in the past. We have to move forward and that's why I think uh, in order to make multilateralism a reality, I think all countries and particularly the G20 uh, summit, uh, I think uh, these countries represent uh, by and large uh, you know, some of the leading forces of world economy. And so these countries need to come together and talk and to come to compromises and understanding on all the issues that we confront uh, as mankind. A platform for an in-depth look economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. Mr. Ross, I know your work plays a very important role in bridging the uh, gap between the East and the West and in promoting the understanding between the two sides. What is your view on this and how do we seek consensus and cooperation uh, in the world today? Well, well, the most fundamental thing that you've got to do is by start by looking at the facts and, and not engaging in fantasies. And I'm afraid particularly in the US media in the last period, there's been a great deal of fantasizing going rather than addressing the facts. So let's look at what's happened during the last four years. The real big problem, and this is the real problem that G20 has got to address, is the very slow growth in the advanced countries. If we take the average for the last four years, the US has grown at less than 2% a year. Europe is a disaster area. It's grown, it's grown at less than 0.5% a year. This is incredibly slow growth. Uh, China's been growing at 4.5% uh, a year, basically two and a half times as fast as the United States and uh, six times as fast as the Eurozone. But instead of addressing this real situation, the US seems engaged in a fantasy that China's got great problems. I mean, the most serious problem that's got to be addressed by the G20 is the developing countries are growing 
reasonably well. China very well. India pretty well. Uh, and ASEAN pretty well. And the developed countries are growing absolutely appallingly slowly. Um, and that's the real problem. The real problem that should be on the G20 address is why are the advanced economies growing so slowly? And how can the global south avoid the consequences of this? That's the real situation. But unless you're prepared to face up and discuss the actual facts of the economic situation, you can't even ask, ask the right questions. Now let's turn to some economic issues because fostering economic growth in the post-pandemic era is still of paramount importance to other countries. And many lower-income countries are facing debt distress and risks of default as they try to recover from the pandemic. So what can the G20 do to provide debt relief or restructuring while maintaining global financial stability? Mr. Gupta? Actually, that is the one area where the, where, where the membership has been very, very focused this year. And part of the reason that had been very focused this year is because the U.S. has pushed unusually hard on this front. All this is good. All this is good. But here's my problem where, where you know, the U.S. wakes up one day and says what, what I would frame as on-demand cooperation. Okay, today I want cooperation on this, this, this and that. Which are which are good, which is good for the global economy, good for developing countries and for everybody. But also, I mean, it's not the only agenda setter. And again, talking in terms of additional financing, how come we won't have additional financing in terms for the IMF, in terms of a new quota review, which will expand the capacity and the voting rights, voting power of emerging economies? No, 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 we don't go out there because, oh, maybe that's a challenge to the US. So this sort of on-demand cooperation where I would like to do it and I don't care about the others. It's not a very useful way to proceed. And we've seen that, you know, for example, and let me bring another example from a little time back. This is the OECD wrote out new rules for, for global corporate taxation rules. You know, global taxation rules are based on 20th century manufacturing activity. We are in the services and digital age. And so they had a very difficult framework on which there's a consensus and folks signed off on it, including the U.S., and now the U.S. wants to break that consensus. And so what the United States pushed, it now does not want to not want to go ahead and implement it. And this creates real challenges in the international system. The U.S. has on-demand cooperation. It does. It's doing, trying to do good for developing countries, but won't give them a voice in choosing how to have local ownership of these projects. And it does, at the end of the day, this is what where the, where the challenges in coordinating within the G20 between the North and the South really crops up because it's my way or, or, or the highway. And, and that's not the way global multilateralism needs to, be, needs, needs to work. That's right. Well, a key message from India this year is to give uh, more voices to the developing countries which are hit the hardest by the global crisis. Um, uh, Mr. Wan, uh, in your opinion, what um, economic issues are topping the agenda and what more concrete actions can be taken from uh, issues like technology governance to supply chain resilience? Well. Uh Economically, there are so many issues uh, uh, that are on the table for every country and globally as well. The world is going through uh, some tremendous changes, uh, whereby China has always been kind of under the spotlight uh, that uh, the U.S. is apparently uh, 
doing a lot of things and trying their best to uh, to contain China's development with the chip war, with uh, you know uh, uh, all kinds of sanctions uh, against Chinese companies. Uh, but uh, what I would like to point out here is. Uh, I think in order to achieve a better understanding, uh, to have a more cohesive world, as mm. we would hope it, is that for developed countries, what they need to do is to swallow the pride, is to swallow the pride, uh, to, to accept the fact that the world has changed, because change is the only thing that never gets changed. But on the other hand, for developing countries like China, like India, like Indonesia, uh, and many other developing countries, I think it's uh, uh, their objective uh, is how to be recognized globally as well. So it's, it's basically, it takes two to tango. You, you can't have a peaceful world where the upcoming countries are struggling very hard to be recognized that I'm coming up, I'm number one, number two, number three. No, let's come together uh, because otherwise with the U.S. as the only superpower that never wants to give up its uh, uh, you know, supremacy, uh, this is where all the problems are coming up. And Mr. Ross, what do you think are the fundamental thing uh, beneath uh, those east-west splits? And if you use either in economically or in technologically, because there is some certain caution against China in the Western world in the development of technology, what is the outlook for tech governance cooperation in G among G20 nations? Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's probably not very good um, because the U.S. is trying to do something which is impossible. And, and as long as it continues to do something which is impossible, the situation is going to be difficult to go. What is it trying to do? The, the average growth rate of the U.S. is 2%. That's its average growth rate for the last 20 years. By 2050, the U.S. is going to be number three in the world. That's, that's the reality. This is a terrible psychological adjustment for them. You know, to, to go from being number one in the world to number three in the world. And the U.S. is trying to, trying to achieve something impossible by... Uh, technology boycotts, uh, tax means, uh, fake propaganda, uh, all sorts of things, and it's not going to work. And as long as the US continues to do, try to do something which is impossible, it's going to create tensions in the world. What the US instead should be looking at, instead of trying to hold other people back, is why is our growth rate only 2%? What can we do about it? How can we speed it up? And this is the underlying source of the problem. The United States trying to maintain a position where it's number one in the world when it's not going to be. And we're going to go through a rough several decades as the United States is forced to adjust to this situation. So I hope this transition will take place peacefully. Mr. Damuri, did you think there are some certain level of reforms needed for G20 as the premium global economic governance platform? Well, uh, G20 has done a lot actually to the economy, uh, to the economic cooperations and also global cooperations in general. Uh, we have to admit it. But of course, the pro uh, the problem uh, is that we have bigger challenges in in front of us in the future. So we need uh, to uh, get this 
uh, platforms uh, to become more effective, you have uh, to get at least three aspects, three elements in that cooperation. The first one is the trust. Uh, and we know that the trust uh, bit among G20 members are uh, uh, nowadays are not really in a good, uh, a good situations. Uh, we have, uh, even we can say that we have uh, the deficit uh, in trust. Uh, the second one is that we have to be able to align the interests among nations, and it, as we already discussed, it's going. Uh, it has been very difficult to do. And the third one is that we have to get the sufficient uh, implementation mechanism, uh, appropriate implementation mechanisms, and uh, and uh, G20 as a uh, informal uh, platforms do not really have that kind of implementation mechanism unlike uh, ASEAN, for example, who has a good uh, uh, structurized body uh, uh, with a, a, a very uh, developed, uh, quite developed uh, uh, implementation mechanism. Uh, of course, G20 has to rely on the uh, international organizations uh, to carry out all their commitments. We also need to do some uh, reforms on that uh, international organization so that the, uh, the G20 aspiration, G20 commitments can also be carried out uh, by uh, those uh, international organizations. This year's G20 summit stands out as a historic milestone with the inclusion of the African Union as a permanent member. Prior to this inclusion, the G20 accounted for approximately 85% of global GDP, more than 75% of international trade, and an estimated two-thirds of the world's population. With the African Union now part of the G20, these figures are poised for a substantial increase given the Union as combined population of approximately 1.4 billion and a total GDP of roughly $3 trillion. This development holds profound implications for Africa's standing in global geopolitics and underscores the growing influence of the Global South. Indeed, Africa has now entered into mainstream international affairs. Uh, Mr. Gupta, in your opinion, how would this likely to uh, change uh, the agenda setting of G20 and what is the impact? It goes down to the fundamental problem of, yes, they're assembled in the room, but they're not really the agenda setters. And when it comes down to actually uh, filling out the details of many of these issues, uh, it's, 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 the, it's the Global North which kind of leads that process. And the Global South is asked to swallow that, even if it is to their benefit, but on the terms of the Global North. And where the Global North cannot meet its commitments, for example, I think the most probably notable one is that they said we're going to give 100 billion a year with regard to climate change. And they hemmed and hawed and tried to pretend that they were doing until last at the last COP, I think COP 27, they finally admitted cannot do, cannot do, we've not done. And they didn't have any. And what I would say to the countries in the global south is that don't just seek voice, don't just seek voting power, try actually to have real intellectual contribution to how changes can be made. And so the Global South has its share of work to also do. If we are going to have a more balanced agenda and we're going to go forward, I mean, hand in hand together, trying to find solutions to problems, which ultimately are, are which, which ultimately will come back to haunt the Global North also 
as we see in terms of migration, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, if these are not resolved. Indeed, we have a shared destiny as the humankind. And uh, Mr. Ross, what is your perspective on this, especially from the G7 countries? Do you think this will help promote cooperation between the South and the North? Or not? Well, I think there's two processes involved. The first is there are very important processes that have taken place whereby the by the global south is getting its um, act together. I agree, it's a bit like somebody said herding cats. I think it's quite as bad as that. But but you've now got a new phenomenon which has taken place. You had first that was the Belt and Road Initiative by China itself. That's got 149 countries in it the great majority of which are, are developing countries. That was a step forward. But secondly, I think of greater importance was the recent um, BRICS summit and the decision to expand BRICS because BRICS is now in, in purchasing power parities, that's real economic terms, real prices, is, has got as big as output as the, uh, as the G7. And it's much more rapidly growing. So what I, I see as a phenomenon, which is what I call a new non-alignment, the new thing which is happening is with BRICS is that this is extremely important um, ec economically. And why why have you got such a range, extraordinary range of countries in it? I mean, you've got Russia, uh, China, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Brazil, Argentina. I mean, these, these are extremely diverse from the point of view of economic strategy. They're extraordinarily diverse from the point of political system. Um, you've got a you've got a monarchy, Saudi Arabia. You've got a socialist country, China. You've got all sorts of republics. Pretty hard to imagine a wider, diverse range of political systems than this. Why have they come together? Well, wh why have they come together is because they want to develop production and go forward. These are relatively rapidly growing economies, and therefore, this BRICS development is extremely important. It's because of these economic processes that you have very different countries coming together. So I, I know that there are problems in the Global South, but there are good signs that the Global South is getting its act together more. And uh, yeah. Mr. Damuri, in your opinion, how to give um, equitable voices to uh, different parties involved and how to help them to not only speak their yes. voice, but also really benefit from the yeah. multilateralism? It's more than just uh, providing uh, uh, the platforms uh, to uh, main, uh, other developing countries uh, to join the G20, for example. Uh, I think first we need to understand that among developing countries itself, the voice is not really uh, coherent. It is difficult uh, uh, to align the differences and come up with coherent voices of developing uh, countries. We also need to know that uh, many developing countries, or at least less developed countries, do not really have sufficient knowledge about their own interests and aspirations. Uh, normally, they know what they don't want, but they do not know what they, they really want. And uh, another thing is also, uh, this is not only about number, uh, this is also about how to provide more resources, actually, uh, to, to get uh, and to be able uh, to, uh, to voice uh, their uh, interests.
That's right. And thank you so much. And that wraps up our discussion today. And I want to thank our distinguished guests again for sharing your invaluable insights with us. So the G20 summit comes at a pivotal moment for international cooperation and leadership. The issues we explore today from climate action to reforming global governance are complex and multifaceted. While consensus may not always be possible, our panelists offered important perspectives on building bridges, finding common ground, and adapting institutions like the G20 to be more inclusive of diverse voices. And that's all for this edition of Econ Talk. I'm Guanxin in Beijing. Until next time, bye for now.